Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. I'm Damien Klassen, Nucleus Wealth's Head of Investments, and uh, I've also got David Llewellyn-Smith here, our Chief Strategist. Welcome, David. G'day, Damo. Thanks. Uh, yes. The uh, topic of the day is an energy crisis inevitable. So obviously, we've seen uh, some pretty amazing um, price movements in, in energy over the last uh, couple of months, and uh, we wanted to have a, have a bit of a deep dive into that today. Uh, looking at the bubble, demand drivers, supply drivers, and, and and what we can sort of see going forward there. But before we start, quick housekeeping. Um, before we get started, if you enjoy our content and you haven't already, please uh, click the subscribe button. Um, oh, and then you can click the bell notification if you want to be notified uh, when we go live or, or when we have a new webinar that you can watch. Uh, alternatively, we are on a whole bunch of other podcast platforms. You're welcome to follow us on any of those as well. Uh, for anyone listening in lives, feel free to drop in questions along the way in the YouTube live stream chat, and we'll try and uh, try and get to those as we're going. So, uh, with that, I might jump straight into the slides and uh, just looking at the agenda for today. So, really, what we'll, what we really want to do is um, uh, look at the hype. I think behind the uh, the amazing uh, the the energy bubble as as much as the uh, the fundamentals. And so, yeah, a really bit of a contrast at the start between the hype and then some of the demand supply drivers, and then how we can see these resolved. Uh, Dave, I might jump across to you for the first one. So, looking yeah, at the amazing sure. energy bubble. Yes, well, it is amazing. Uh, well, perhaps it's better to say it would have been amazing if it wasn't like bubble number seventy five coming out of COVID because it's been a rolling sequence of them. So this one is is probably the most amazing of all. That being said, some of the price movements in energy worldwide have been nothing short of uh, extraordinary and unprecedented. Uh, so I've really only, I could have picked a million charts, but I've just picked one, the best one basically, to give you a, a sense of it. And that is European gas price. Uh, which has gone up over a thousand percent over the last twelve months, um, but you could, I could show you thermal coals up four fifty, coking coal two hundred thirty, oil a hundred. Uh, all of these these energies are up, you know, spectacular quantities. Um, other than oil, they're all at absolute record highs by miles, uh, and that that's just the tip of the iceberg. They've, these these are just some futures markets. There's the spot markets I could show you, plus various other uh, indices around the world of these different energies. Uh, and they've all gone completely nuts. Mm. Uh, and it's happened very, very quickly. Like obviously energy prices have been climbing, but at reasonable kind of rates for much of the last 12 months. But then in the last three months, it's just gone completely parabolic. Yeah, uh, but it is worth saying that the 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 longer term futures are, are much lower though. So absolutely, well, they're, so they're all in in very steep backwardation. So uh, futures markets are all saying this is very temporary. Yeah, uh, and, while... and so actually, let me let me just explain that for anyone who's not sort of on top of the the, the futures market is basically what you can do is you can buy these things for a future delivery date. And so, and the the prices uh, we're sort of showing here are some of the, are the very near dated deliveries. But if you yeah. go out a year, two years, three years, um, these prices fall right back down to uh, to current, um, or, or sorry, to, to sort of prior levels based on the um, not not uh, quite prior levels. That's an interesting point. Um, mm. They they do fall way back, but uh, to levels that are a bit higher than they were previously, which 
Mm. I basically think will pass as well. I think they will all fall back to their previous lows. Mm. Uh, but uh, for the time being, there's some lingering, uh, uh, I suppose, traction for the the dominant narrative for this, which is actually completely out of step with futures markets. And that is that this is a structural problem in energy uh, derived from ESG, so environmental, ethical, and, and various other concerns that are inhibiting supply side investment into energy and creating this a structural shortage. That means these prices will be high forever. That's the dominant narrative coming out of Wall Street. Uh, which is then tipping into all sorts of other things, stagflation, etc. Where uh, futures markets are out of step with that because they see see prices falling way back, but it has impacted them to the extent that prices are uh, are projected to be higher than they used to be, say in the last yes. cycle. Yeah, uh, I think that's highly questionable as well. Mm. Uh, so anyway, let's dig into why. Um, so there's there's four sort of major energy raw materials that are all raging hot. There are others, but these are the big ones. Um, and the two the two critical components of this uh, is really one trade, and that is they're the raw material input into electricity production, coal and gas. Uh, and so on the first leg of that in coal, it's obviously a huge, uh, by far the most dominant form of Chinese energy. Um, electricity output is is coal generated because basically it has immense coal reserves, uh, and so its coal demand has gone you know really bananas this year. At one point, I think it was up about sixteen percent. Its electricity demand, I should say, has gone bananas this year. Uh, up a, so you know generally you'll see an electricity increase. Uh, in a, even in a, gro a rapidly growing economy of maybe three or four percent, uh, this year we saw sixteen, uh, and so obviously that was a huge demand shock for the Chinese uh, grid, uh, and that that sort of landed on top of uh, already depleted coal inventories. Um, but you know the question is, is it sustainable? Well. If we look at my two charts I've got up here is one, the main driver of this huge kind of uh, demand surge for Chinese power was is actually exports and uh, coming a lot uh, very much out of the US and its huge um, demand side stimulus. So yeah, there's a chart here showing you just how far ahead of trend goods demand is in the US. Uh, and as it happens, it's about 16%. Uh, matching the peak of, of uh, Chinese um, power growth earlier this year. It's now down to about 5%, by the way, so it is falling away. Well, growth is coming back, uh, as it were. Uh, and so the first question we're going to ask is, you know, is this huge spike in US demand going to continue for goods? This is specifically for goods spending. Uh, so, yeah, and and this and it's mirrored around the world, isn't it? In terms of this, is people who can't spend money on on haven't been able to spend money on services or travel, um, and instead they've been spending money on goods. Yes, and so the question is, does that continue? Yes, and yes, yeah, for, which us, is, for us, which answers, will, yes, well, we'll, come, we'll come back to whether or not it continues, but uh, mm -hmm. that's that's been one of the the. You know, there, there is a kernel of truth to what's going on in these energy markets, and that's one of them. 
where we have had this huge surge in power demand in China. And the second chart I've got up there shows you why it's hit the power grid so hard, and that is the Chinese economy is just fully leveraged to uh, electricity output in it because it's so industrial. Um, most developed economies, it's you know, industry constitutes perhaps 15% of power uptake. In China, it's more like 60 or 70. So it's just uh, when it's been hit, struck by this big export and external boom, it's been very power hungry. And so that's driven up uh, consumption hugely. Uh, and so that's your coal story, more or less. Um, on the this, the second Sorry, Damo. You want well, to... yeah, it's worth saying. I mean, so Mongolian coal as well. So it was there were some some blockages there. Oh, these are these are only the demand drivers. We'll, oh, okay, right. We'll Sorry. come to supply. Um, and then the second leg of this is gas, uh, and uh, gas demand's been very strong in Asia for the same reasons um, because coal's been short. But the real gas crisis has hit in Europe, uh, and you know, again, there's some weather-related stuff in this, uh, and you know, which which helped sustain demand um, uh, and boosted it. But uh, the main issues for gas are actually on the supply side. So we'll come back to that in a moment. And the third factor, which has really driven the oil price up is uh, on the demand side is US reopening, which is, you know, sucked in a bit more oil. Uh, and um, the same globally as, as other economies have reopened, demand's still well down on where it used to be. Uh, but, you know, it started to rise uh, and it, it has, for the time being, uh, drained US inventories because supply hasn't yet responded as it, as it has in previous cycles, which is a good jumping off pro point for us to get into the supply well, drivers. And, and I suppose on the, on the demand side, though, as well, you'd, you'd also say the, um, we don't know for sure in terms of the, what's going to happen in terms of cars, but, uh, but there's a reasonable chance that uh, you see a lot more driving and less public transport uh, going forward. So certainly there's well, been a lot of demand for cars. That's absolutely the case, yes. So, yeah. so but, all, but, all but, demand's but been the solid side, in though, the US. Yeah, but on the flip side is we don't know how much working from home offsets that. So, you know, so, you know if you have 20% fewer public transport trips and 20% more car rides, but then your overall car rides falls because there's more people working from home than, than where that balances out, nobody really knows. Yeah. Uh, I would argue that other than the uh, a little bit of weather and the, the very large goods demand coming out of the US at the moment, by far the biggest factors in what we're seeing in energy at the moment is the supply side drivers. Um, so, you know, going through our three energies again, um, and we'll start with coal again in China. Uh, I mean, China's just seen an entire uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, what what is the collective adjective for butterflies? Damo, is it a flock of butterflies? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Well, we've had a flock of butterflies flap their wings all around the world to create uh, a you know limited supply of coal for China uh, in the short term. So it's had a bunch of accidents itself, which have uh, triggered... A number of closures and inspections and stuff in its major coal producing states. It's had floods in those coal producing states as well. Uh, it's had COVID issues with Mongolia, forcing it to shut its borders and reduce a lot of coal imports, especially in coking coal. Uh, it's the, some of the weather related stuff 
again has hit China in that on the supply side because it's had quite low hydroelectric output. Yes, the places where the floods are is not where you want them. If you, no, if that's right. They're all in the wrong places. Exactly yeah. right. Mm. Uh, and then it's also had a lot of low imports of coal and for a variety of reasons. There's been some row accidents in Russia, uh, obviously problems with Australia, um, just geopolitical problems, but then a bunch of COVID restrictions around the world and other exporters. Uh, and so... You know, it's really has been a perfect storm for Chinese coal on the supply side in in literally in in a million different storms um, that have all come together uh, to to uh, to hit it right at the at the moment that its demand's gone nuts. And so, you know, basic economics gives you the outcome. Um, <clears throat> uh, the European stuff, which is you know more gas, uh, is 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 less complex and more complex and um, you know it's it's had some low wind output but the key input in europe has simply been that russia has uh, taken the opportunity of uh you know uh, tight energy supply globally um to really put the squeeze on europe for a number of reasons uh, it hasn't built a new pipeline into europe that that manages to uh, circumvent uh ukraine and uh, by doing so, you know, over the long run, you know, the current one of the current major pipelines coming from Russia into the Europe goes into Europe goes through Ukraine, and so if it can build a pipeline around that, it doesn't have to pay the Ukraine anything, uh, and so it it increases its margins on the gas it can sell to Europe. Um, obviously, it could appeal to Europe as well because it might end up being cheaper gas. But then you get into all sorts of complex questions of NATO, Ukraine, uh, who, what, you know, whose sphere of influence does Ukraine operate in? Uh, it, arguably, at the moment, it's half half in the EU camp and half in the Russian camp. But if Russia managed just to gut its gas revenues, uh, then it's got huge leverage over Ukraine and it can start to draw it away from NATO and back towards Russia. And so all of these different forces are, are at play in the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline. And this gas crunch that Gazprom has very deliberately foisted upon Europe. It's It's got heaps of production, Gazprom, uh, but it just simply is refusing to send it to Europe. Uh, and so you really have some, I suppose you'd call cartel well, behaviour going on, yeah. the, on the supply side. That They'll, they'll argue that Russia will argue that there's, that's not the case, but you know that, would, that they need it at home or whatever it is. But you, know, you can see from that chart pretty clearly that um, yeah, you know, it seems to be a very a very happy coincidence that just just well, as they need to um, negotiate this pipeline and and get the final approvals um, to, to to get it flowing, uh, that that all of a sudden there's a gas shortage and and yeah. well, wouldn't wouldn't this and, and Vladimir's even come out a couple of times and said, you know, wouldn't it be nice if this this uh, new pipeline was up and running? Yeah, to, that's to right. Look, they're, they're, they're barely barely containing their mirth, to be honest. Mm. I mean, they're barely bothering to lie. It's just a case of, you know, what you've got to do and do it, and we'll give you the gas. Mm. Um, so, so the. That's why the story is simpler in Europe, but it's also more complex because it's not simply an economic decision. There's all sorts of uh, geopolitical calculus that goes into whichever one of when those decisions are made to release the gas and to ease ease the uh, energy shock. So, 
Yeah, and and the other thing uh, you you know that you'd have to think is on uh, on uh, Russia's mind is you know you can push this a certain distance, but you can't push it too far because if you push it too far, then Europe just says you know what this Russian gas isn't reliable at all. Let's let's import it from um you know let's import it from the Middle East. Let's import it from the US. Let's import it from Australia. Yes, and uh, yeah, again, but... there are limits to how far they can push it, but uh, I mean that they, they are exceedingly dependent on Russian gas, so. Yeah. Uh, they don't want to push it too far because there are lots of incentives for the Europe to move away from there already. Mm. Uh, uh, so that's the basically the, the coal and gas stories um, uh, on the supply side. Uh, in, in terms of uh, oil and depleting US inventories, um, the US, you know, the last cycle, uh, oil markets especially in the US, became very dependent on US shale, as we know. Uh, and uh, it's always responded very quickly to rising prices in the past, anything above $50, and it started to roll out the rigs and frack some more. Uh, this time it has been a little slower to ramp up, um, looking to sort of return capital to investors rather than uh, borrow more and, and get into more capex. Uh, that is probably a small structural shift in the market, um, a little bit more uh, capex control. Uh, however, since oil passed about seventy dollars, um, the, the the rig counter started to accelerate upwards, uh, and already you're starting to see U.S. output ramp up. Uh, and by mid next year, we'll be at the same highs of rigs as, uh, assuming the oil price stays above seventy, we'll be back where we were in 2019 before COVID. There'll be a little bit of delay on the flow of oil uh, because they've got to rebuild their frack logs, etc. But, you know, US output will be ramping pretty happily into mid next year. Uh, and the thing to note is the, uh, the gas side in the US is that, you know, gas in the US is really a, um, a byproduct of, yeah. of, of oil. So when they, most of the, most of the shale oil that, that, that they, uh, that they're doing the fracking on has elements of gas in it. Some some have more gas, some have less gas, but uh, the oil is a really valuable um, part. And the gas is sort of like, well, if if it's um, in the past, they'd often flare it, so they just literally just burn it to get rid of it. Uh, now there's lots of pipelines around. They tend to push it into the pipelines, and there's some places where uh, you know they've even had negative um, uh, negative prices from time to time in terms uh, negative gas prices in terms of people. Are Picking it up, you know, it costs money to, to, and there's environmental issues to flare it. So they're happy to just actually pump it into pipelines and even make a small loss um, because the the oil they're getting out is so valuable. So as the oil picks up, you'll also see more gas production. And it's worth noting that so U.S. Uh, gas inventories are, are a little below average um, uh, at the moment, but uh, there's been a lot more uh, U.S. exports of gas as well over the last uh, couple of years. And so I guess what I'm saying is that they're, they're managing to keep their inventories not far away from, from where they used to, do, used to be, even with um, increased exports. And so as the, the, uh, the oil ramps up again, you'd expect to see more, more gas uh, exports. That's right. Up. And there, there is an insane gas arbitrage at the moment between Europe and the US. Like the US natural gas price is sitting at about five bucks. You know, in, in Europe, it's at... I didn't look at what the latest price was in the um, chart, but it's 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 
it's whatever it is, a hundred bucks or something. And yeah, the US could ship that gas to Europe for, for ten or twelve. You know, so there, this yes. is something of a lid on what the Russian, how hard the Russians can push, because you know the, the Europeans can turn uh, to to pretty good volumes of US LNG and uh, your Russia, you know, cost Russia market share. So, uh, the, so there should be a resolution for both. And yes, there'll be a lot more US gas coming online. And as we know, they've got a huge LNG export boom underway. Uh, they're uh, already closing in on Australian volumes and they've got uh, just an unbelievable quantity of LNG export plants in the pipeline with approvals. Not all of those have capital and FID, but there's there's heaps coming on stream. Uh, also heaps of gas coming from Qatar in about three to four years uh, so i mean the final point to make on supply basically is that there really isn't any any esg constraint that 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 argument just looks made up to me um, there's heaps of energy uh, raw materials floating around the place but we have had this permit perfect storm of demand and supply in the short term yeah uh, I mean, I wouldn't say made up because because there are long there, there's I guess I guess for me I look at it and go there's the, the big long term projects like if if you found an off an offshore um if you found an offshore oil um supply and you're looking at do I tap this and then and then run it down you're probably talking ten years or so just to just to get oil out of the ground even if you're going really quickly on the whole thing. Mm. Um, and then you know you're running it for 30 or 40 years. You know you're well past 2050 at that point. You know, and and some of these things take 20 or 30 years to get up and running. So you know by the time we've hit net zero at 2050, you, your oil well will just be coming on. And that's very different though to the um, to the short term stuff. So so there are there there are some ESG issues playing out in those bigger longer term projects. But the issue is um, the pauses in that, and that might slow down today. But we're not going to see the the supply effects of that for a decade or two decades. So, yeah. um, you know, the, it's the decisions that were made two decades ago that were making that are, that are determining, or, or a decade ago that are determining what what oil, new oil is coming on today. Um, yeah. In the in mm-hmm. those big projects, the flip side is the U.S. projects. There's the shale stuff, which turns on on and off very quickly, so they can get up and running within um, within a year or two. Um, and uh, and often, uh, you know, David's spoken about the frac logs. A lot of the ones have. Um, you know, effectively uh, drilled it, got it all ready, and then and then blocked it up, um, and then it, then when the the prices are high enough, they can they can open it back up again and and, and let it out. That's not as um, probably not as uh, the the volumes there aren't, aren't aren't big enough to to sort of handle huge swings, but they're certainly at the margin. Um, that's they're a lot faster to to react in terms of those shale. I might so, I might accept you, Dave, for a few questions actually from. Um, yeah. For, well, for let me some... just add. Okay. Uh, uh, just in terms of the ESG stuff, yes, absolutely. I mean, in terms of today's price action, I don't think it's it's mm. it's relevant. So anyway, yes, go on. Um, <clears throat> okay. So a question from Sasha: uh, Is EU's move from long term to spot contract uh, for gas part of the uh, part of the price problem? Oh, good lord. Next. Long term to spot, yeah, maybe next. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, am not sure. I can only argue because I don't follow that market that closely in terms of <clears throat> the, those dynamics. I, I do follow the Asian market and LNG market pretty closely in that sense. Um, 
where I would say, uh, would that have been an issue in Asian gas? Uh, look, to, to the extent that spot gas has become more popular in, in Asia, and perhaps by analogy Europe, um, it will be part of, of what's transpired uh, because you're simply getting more of those price pressures coming to bear sooner. Uh, but I guess the point here is that uh, the uh, the underlying imbalance um, that we're seeing is all is a perfect storm of temporary factors. Um, so, you know, if we we're all on long-term supply contracts, then price volatility would certainly be lower. Yes, and you could possibly argue, therefore, that the future may see more volatile energy prices as spot markets become more dominant. Uh, but Again, you know, the factors that have driven this this um, imbalance are very temporary, so I wouldn't be overly concerned about it. Mm. Um, uh, iron ore, any thoughts on, on effects of uh, energy crisis on iron ore? Uh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> uh, so in the short term, uh, and I guess we'll touch on this later, but we, we can do this now, I suppose. Um, so the price action around coking coal in China has been just drop dead crazy. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons for that is, or the main reason for that is, as we know, coking coal is a critical ingredient into, into uh, blast furnace production of steel along with iron ore. What's happened once this power crisis has hit China is it's responded in part by forcing shutdowns in its industrial economy, the, the, the highly intended, intensive energy intensive areas of its industrial economy. And that includes steel and lots of metals processing. Uh, and the, but the steel shutdowns have been uh, largely electric arc furnaces. That's where they, where you use most of the electricity and that's, in, that's, that's using steel scrap. Uh, so that's absorbed some of the steel shutdown or steel output cuts that we've been seeing in China, protected, uh, you know, iron ore and coking coal a little um, through from those steel output cuts. Nonetheless, even if you extract extrapolate from those or include those in your numbers, you still reach numbers something like uh, coking coal demand having fallen away by about 100 million tonnes from peak demand earlier this year to where it is today. And there's just such an astonishing quantity of coking coal uh, to, uh, to have, for the market to not need. For the price to be going bananas uh, is, is uh, well, let's just call it irrational. I'm going to run out of metaphors for, for what it really is, but it's, it's highly irrational. Um, so... What I would expect to happen is as as these coal, as China basically, and we'll come to this through the resolution, as China starts to produce more coal and all of the supply side loosens up around the world and it gets more imports, etc., and the prices crash, then that EAF production that's been cut, the steel production, scrap steel, is all going to come back on stream. And it's a huge quantity. It's like 120 million tonnes of steel. And so if the steel cuts remain in place, then you're suddenly going to have an enormous surplus of both iron ore and coking coal. Uh, and so I expect, <clears throat> excuse me, I expect ultimately there is another macro dimension to this, but 
oh, I probably get, shouldn't get too too sidetracked. I think ultimately this this energy bubble will be very bad for iron ore. I'll quickly tell you the other part of it. Right now, Chinese growth is stalled completely on its property crash and its energy shock because the energy shock has is, is caused it to cut all of it, a lot of its metals processing, as I said, and that's hit industrial output. But as the energy crisis eases, it's going to ramp up all that stuff again. And so it'll get better growth for a quarter or two as it starts to ramp up all that energy processing as coal deflates. And so it has no need necessarily to intervene on for property because its growth will be re-accelerating in industry. And so, again, you're going to see, uh, uh, like, a, a, you know, and property being such a huge demand driver for iron ore and, and coking coal, then I see basically uh, nothing but downside for iron ore. Uh, and I think the energy bubble potentially makes it worth, worse for those two reasons, the distortions from EAF and then the distortion from... Um, cut steel and rebounding steel and how those two things work together or mm. cut Chinese growth and rebounding Chinese growth. Uh, so I hope that wasn't let's, too long-winded. Yeah, no, let's let's jump onto the um, paths of resolution. We'll, we'll hold off the other questions until, yeah, because I think some of those might be partly answered. Okay. So, so where we are now is we've had perfect storm. It's depleted inventories everywhere, um, by, owing to both demand and supply side impacts. Uh, and we're going into the Northern Hemisphere winter, which is the highest period, obviously, of energy demand for heating. Uh, and we also have a, we're on the verge of a La Nina, which throws, you know, a real spanner into the works of traditional energy patterns. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, a colder winter. It kind of just makes winter a bit more volatile across the Northern Hemisphere. In net terms, it might even be a little bit better, but it changes the patterns of it, I guess is the key question. But it does other things on the supply side, like for instance, there are a lot more cyclones around Australia. Uh, and some people may remember, I think it was 2011, 12, when we had you know, Cyclone Yazi, that was a, a um, La Nina event, and it just flooded all of Australia's coking coal mines in Queensland and they were shut down for months. And and if you had something like that now hitting these markets, then they'd, they'd make today look, you know, positively sane. So so there's, there is this uh, next few months where we're, we go into the northern winter with depleted inventories and, and possible weather effects. You cannot discount the possibility that this gets like spectacularly worse, uh, even though it is actually starting to resolve. If we have a little weather shock that comes in, uh, it will be it will be a big problem for markets and they'll simply price out or they'll start to price in demand destruction to balance the market. Hmm. Uh, or um, or cold, you know, obviously a cold uh, northern winter. Is the, uh... Or, yeah, cold people, but that's the same thing. <laughs> oh, no, sorry, sorry. I was just saying, I was saying yeah, so you spoke about La Nina being, it's in terms of weather. There's oh, a, yeah, or, there's or a, just a, a plain cold, to, cold northern winter, yes. Yeah, absolutely. sorry, there's a weather shock to supply, but there's also a possible weather shock to demand in, as well in terms of... Oh, absolutely, know, yes. And, and, and part of it is if, if the cold winter's across the middle of Russia where hardly anyone lives, then it doesn't make a difference. But yes. if the cold winter is right. you know, a, few, a few hundred kilometres or um, whatever further east or west and, yes. and next thing you know you start affecting big population quite right um, in China or in uh, or in, in Europe. So so today we're in this febrile situation where you know it's it's volatile. Um, uh, nonetheless we maintain that this is a cyclical uh, problem, not structural, as pretty much Wall Street is arguing 
that it's structural. Uh, and I think rather cynically to blow a big fat bubble. So anyway, that's what it does. Uh, so how does it resolve? Um, so we think that, you know, this extremely elevated goods volume, volumes that we're seeing out of the US um, will just slowly diminish um, as it reopens to services and spending gets reallocated. Uh, um, there may be, you know, there are going to be uh, um, other economies opening and closing and, you know, it's really, really impossible to predict precisely, but we think that the spike has been so, so full on out of the US that uh, it is likely in net terms to diminish over the next 12 months. Um, so that, that impact should wane steadily. Um, Chinese coal is already booming. Uh, on the back of crazy prices and official intervention. So the low uh, they reached during their little perfect storm was a month or two ago at about 10.4 million tonnes per day output. They're already back to like 11.6 and they're going to get it to 12 really quick, I think, certainly within six months, probably three. Uh, and so I just think thermal, um, thermal coal is going to crash. In fact... It has crashed over the last two days. Um, it's been slammed. And I think, you know, without weather intervening, I think thermal coal's in real trouble already, basically. So I think that bubble's going to pop. Uh, as I just went through with coke and coal, I just think demand for coke and coal is, it's been absolutely clubbed. Uh, and it's kind of been rising in sympathy with thermal coal, uh, you know, because maybe you can use some higher some better quality coal if in power generation if you need to certainly been a massive speculative element and hoarding has piled into both these markets um, but the the wonder of that is that it's pro-cyclical and if the market gets a sniff that, that this is turned then all of that will unwind really fast and so that's why i expect both coals to crash it may not be now it may be new year it may be february but i don't think it's going to take long I think coal is in trouble already. Um, gas, as we've discussed, is a little more complex because it's just very difficult to determine uh, political decision-making. Um, but as we've discussed, there are some constraints on how hard Russia can push. Uh, and one of them, you know, probably the main one, is US in LNG into Europe, which it hasn't really resorted to yet, but it can. Uh, and so, you know, at a certain point, I, I guess there'll be a deal done there that that one's a bit in the lap of the gods. Uh, but the one thing you should we should factor in is if coal starts to break, it will break gas because they're effectively the same trade. Like both produce electricity. And so you, you can rotate from one to the other in your grid when need be. So if coal really starts to come off, it will be difficult for gas to be sustained uh, at extreme price levels. Uh, so in other words, we expect the whole thing to come a cropper pretty quickly. Um, now this has, has a flow on into all kinds of different investment markets. Um, <clears throat> we've been arguing all year that we'll be get, we'll, we will be seeing a commodity route coming out of, you know, uh, the COVID reopening. Um, uh, we, you know, this energy bubble pretty much came out of the blue. Um, 
even even the Wall Street bulls were not predicting coal and LNG suddenly take off. Uh, it's it's not something that we foresaw. And uh, as I say, I really do think that it is a, <clears throat> a bit of a perfect storm. So I think it will, uh, it will pass relatively quickly. But for the time being, um, what it's done through, as we mentioned before, is uh, uh, it's created some demand destruction in China already because prices have gotten so high. And the main component of that has been cutting metal supply output. And so that that means all metal prices have started to rise and blow off with the energy prices. Uh, but once you start to see the energy prices come off, um, then, of course, that goes into full reverse and China can resume uh, a lot of that metals processing. And so, you, you know, those those things that have gone up in sympathy with energy should come straight back down with it. Yeah, and, and keep in mind a lot of that's the cost of the, the – it's a refining cost that's blown out because people just can't get the capacity. So you've yes. got your, your copper or your aluminium or whatever coming in at one end, but the, the factory's <clears throat> shut to, to refine that into the, the final metal. And so yeah. um, it's, it's, it's not the issue that – um, the copper ore that's coming out of the ground is all of a sudden in great demand. It's actually the other end, the uh, the refined copper is is a part that's in great demand. And and um, yeah, it's, so so you're not necessarily if you if a lot of a lot of coal a lot of copper companies outsource that part, and so um, uh, yeah, you're not necessarily buying copper miner and picking up all that gain. Yes. So the point is, you've got a whole bunch of these procyclical forces that simply roll over. Well, pro-cyclical up, rolling over when energy does and becoming pro-cyclical down. And then on top of that, there's a convergence here for a whole bunch of things that aren't very good for commodities, which is, you know, the Chinese property bust is still getting worse. Uh, we've, we've now seen uh, the, the People's Bank of China, the, the uh, PBOC, come in last weekend and, and, you know, pull a bananke and tell us that, uh, you know, the property developer shakeout is contained and it isn't. Um, uh, it has managed to, to sort of talk down some spreads for this in the short term, uh, but it still looks to me to be uh, out, the cat looks out of the bag to me. And, and principally, the principal reason for that is there's been no change in the regulatory environment, which is really driving it. And, uh, a political or uh, calculus still, still seems to be to, to use this huge export boom to deflate property, especially the developers, not necessarily property prices, although they have started to fall, uh, but certainly to, to demolish the developer sector, which has simply gotten way out of control in China. And so that remains on track, uh, despite the PBOC reassuring that it's going to try and keep credit stable uh you know the the authorities for instance uh, last week launched a new anti-corruption um, uh, program through uh the financial regulators uh, and the bank <coughs> and the banks dealing with the developers and so the developers just have all sorts of funding problems from from uh, spreads through banks, through falling sales because the market is spooked. And so property in China remains frozen, somewhat frozen. Uh, and that doesn't look, it doesn't look like they've done enough to stop it to me. Uh, so all of this energy bubble and bust, I think converges with that. 
And as we forecast for all of, all of this year, um, uh, US growth is also sliding really fast. Even though the goods demand is still there, it's it's um, overall growth is is uh, coming off all of the huge growth rates. And you know we still expect that good stuff to slide away. And most critically, not just in terms of growth rates, but actual volumes. That's what matters to commodities. Uh, so that's what we we think will happen over 2022. And then as the, all of those things happen together, then you're going to get an easing in the supply side bottlenecks that we've still got going. Um, there's some amazing material floating around at the moment on US ports uh, and how they're seeking to manage, you know, this incredible kind of volume spike uh, of in, the inflow of goods um, and how jammed up they all are and what they're aiming to do about it. I mean, it's everything from, you know, using smaller boxes and packing containers more than they used to, to trying to work 24 hours a day. But uh, it's like a traffic jam at the moment uh, where uh, everybody's slowed to a crawl. Nobody really knows what the answer is to the tailback. It's lots of little things, but at a certain point it clears and then suddenly it doesn't just go back to 60 kilometres an hour, it goes up to 100 because you've created all these efficiencies while you were, you know, in the in the congestion. Uh, and so everything works twice as well as it used to and your prices suddenly crater. Uh, and so we see that coming as well. Uh, and, and, and I guess keeping in mind, though, that there's it's, it's really hard to tell whether that's going to clear. You know, it even, is. Um, you know, the... the in well, terms I, uh, of people yeah. analysing traffic jams is a great example because uh, you know nobody really knows exactly what the 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 the, the cause was that tipped it from everyone going you know, 100 kilometres an hour to everyone dropping back to, to 15. Yes. Yeah, the tailback is one of the great mysteries of the of the modern universe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you can never really tell as well that the, the what then all of a sudden clears it and, and next thing you know everyone's back going at 100 again. Yes, and so. Um, yeah, knowing that, I guess there's, there's this thing about saying, well, will goods demand stay so high forever and just keep keep growing and we'll never be able to catch up in terms of capacity? And we're going, well, no, we don't think that's the case. Um, you think it'll be a mixture of um, improvements in processes and that whole goods demand coming back to something more normal. That just yeah. And when it frees up, we fully expect it to, to free up quickly. So, so you've got a convergence of all these deflationary events um, but for the time being, the dominant narrative coming out of Wall Street and kind of monetary narrative in the US is stagflation. Uh, as, you know, these supply side impacts limit growth and prices go up. Uh, we don't buy into that. But the point is that the Fed is kind of being spooked into tapering at this point because you've got, you know, you do have lots of heavily distorted markets by this, you know, free money. Uh, and and you know there's lots of people arguing now that this that this inflation is embedding and becoming structural, uh, and so the Fed looks like it is going to taper, and you know that's probably going to give us a reasonably strong U.S. dollar, which is another headwind against all of you know what that adds to the procyclicality on the downside that we're talking about here for 2022. So uh, we're not saying this happens overnight, and we don't know. You know, there's lots of uh, um, unforecastable things in, in, in precise terms. Uh, but in general, when we look at 2022, we can see how this bubble, uh, this energy bubble bursts relatively quickly and then tips into a whole range of things that then deflate and we end up 
you know, 2022 being a year of quite sharp deflation, not inflation, because you have to remember all these prices right now are not just uh, rebounded from COVID lows. They're actually really, really high. And so if they come off and head to anything resembling normal, then 2022 will, will not just be zero inflation. It'll be deeply, de deeply negative, uh, you know, across all of the supply side strains that we're seeing now. Um, so we just think that that happens. So, so having, having said that, so we're talking about a deeply negative producer prices. Yes. Um, not, yes, yes. Not, 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 not consumer prices. No, consumer that's prices right. Will be, yes. will be lower, but we're not expecting, yeah. Deep yes, yes. No, no, and there are other, other obviously other things that work into the CPI, but basically as that happens, markets will start to price the CPI pressures diminishing over time as well. Mm. Um, but yes, we're largely talking about producer prices. Um, so, uh, you know, at the moment, we've got a yield backup going on globally. And as uh, markets kind of spooked by all of this and are looking, f you know, starting to price in stagflation uh, or at least inflation, if not stagflation. Uh, and that's that's starting to, to do a couple of interesting things to other asset markets. Um, you know, the Australian, Australian yields, for instance, have outpaced the US and we've, we've reverted from, you know, we were at a discount. We're in, in a negative spread to the US earlier this year, but it's now positive. And, you know, that's helping to lift the Australian dollar as well as commodity prices. Uh, however, um, again, we don't see that lasting. Um, we think that uh, as this various, these various short-term distortions come out, and begin to deflate, then the then the current yield back up will roll over. Certainly, in, at the long end, uh, like the further that we get into into a Fed taper, I think the markets will eventually. We had a bit of a taste of it this week, but we'll get more of it. The, the curve will start to flatten pretty quick uh, because markets will simply start to price in that that um, all of the all of the tightening will start damaging growth, um, etc. So. Um, so at the moment, going along with that yield back up, we've got a bit of a, a rotation, not much to be honest, but some where uh, value has led growth again for a few months, um, which is, you know, kind of reversal of what we've seen for the last maybe three or four months. Uh, but growth is still doing okay, to be honest. You know, tech bid's still there, even if it's corrected somewhat. But, it, you know, the thing is, if yields roll and this whole deflation starts to happen and it is accompanied with slowing growth and in particular China really struggling to come out of its property correction, uh, then we still think that a broad base stock correction is, is the base case. Uh, so oh, we wouldn't be immediately rushing back to, to growth from value either, but you know we would maybe buy it, probably buy it on, on, a, on a correction. Uh, and at the moment, we're still very short miners and we're out of banks uh, for the same reasons, because, you know, they're, they're cyclical plays and we see this, this uh, pretty extraordinary kind of cyclical uh, blow off in, in growth and prices and commodities and, and the whole risk on complex, if you like. Um, we see it all reversing next year. Mm. Um, oh, just a quick, couple of quick questions. Uh, yep. 
In the last energy price boom, food commodities, rice, wheat, edible oils, etc., began to rise because corn prices rose and ethanol and the cost of production increased. We're going to see the same thing happen again. Uh, we're seeing some of that already. And um, uh, so in the short term, maybe, but I wouldn't be too worried about that in the long. Um, I mean, the other factor that in, in food prices that's always really can be very material is, is a La Nina. Um, because it changes rain patterns everywhere. And the um, when I was talking about Cyclone Yazi, um, I think that was during the last, the same La Nina that gave us, you know, the Arab Spring uh, and and everything when, uh, you know, all sorts of grains prices went bananas. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't track particular grains uh, in detail, so I can't really comment on where they're at. Uh, but I'd probably be more concerned about La Nina having a short-term impact than I would the energy bubble because I, I just, well, I think the energy bubble is going to deflate. So I don't think that'll be a big deal long-term. And then you're really in the lap of the weather gods from there. Mm. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Um, uh, that's probably about it. I'm not sure if anyone else you know, want, want to drop in any questions, if anyone's got any anything in particular they wanted to, they wanted to follow up on. Uh, I'll give that a give that a quick minute or two. So, is there anything else, Dave? You wanted to run through? Uh no, that, that's about that's it. I'll, I'll just, uh, I guess, I'll just add that I've, I've I've tracked commodity markets for well over twenty years, um, and I I have to say some of the pricing I've seen in the last month uh, is is really really crazy stuff. Mm. You know, like well, it's it's the craziest I've ever seen, and and I, I wouldn't discount even a psychological element in this being in the post-COVID environment. Like everybody's a bit nuts at the moment, and including people. You know, markets are made up of people, uh, and so you know we've had rolling bubbles through all sorts of markets during this COVID post-COVID recovery, and uh, I think that's really the context for this. I don't think it's the long-term ESG stuff, I actually think it's more just crazy humans. Yeah, and 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 supply shortages and and supply oh, yeah, chains. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, no, no, don't yeah. get me wrong. There, there is a kernel of truth here. Just, just mm. as it has been, like in the tech bubble we saw earlier in COVID, right? Mm. You know, when we when we saw the K-shaped recovery, there was a kernel of truth there. But then, why are you buying profitless dog tech? And bidding it up to infinite multiples, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's. There's a kernel of truth in all these bubbles. Um, yeah. There's a kernel of truth in in the Bitcoin, you know, mm. and in blockchain and its uses, etc. It's just once Wall Street gets a hold of it, uh, you know, Wall Street's real role is not to analyze; it's to sell. Mm. So, it it sells. Yep, and and the I mean the other thing to note as well, just in terms of that whole demand supply imbalance, is that. Um, you know, the, the biggest uh, consumer of almost every commodity around is the Chinese building market. And that's going through this massive yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, slowdown. And it's the the irony of all ironies. That there's, well, it <laughs> is, yes. Commodities rising as, yes. as yes. the world's biggest consumer it slows down and doesn't look like, you know, yeah, that, that is speeding up. That really, that really is just the nub of the crazy. <laughs> like, mm. That's amazing. Yeah. Hmm. So just got some questions around along the um, uh, Aussie dollar. So how long before uh, you know it goes south, and how far north can it go before it uh, before it does? Well, it, you know, it, it's it's 
been at record short positioning, so I mean it's vulnerable as as we've said many times to a to a big squeeze, um, and that we've got that underway, which, which pushes the price up, pushes the Aussie dollar yep. up. This is yeah. So you know, um, you know, I don't know, but but I I mean. We'll put it this way: we pulled off some of our US dollar hedges and haven't put them back on yet. Um, uh, I would have thought anything up at seventy-eight, I'd be like going in with both hands. Um, but it may not be to get there. I mean, as I say, I think the coal dimension to this looks like it's in trouble already. Um, so but, but again, it the, also the weather thing as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, and then the weather's the yeah, the weather thing is the real is the real problem to say anything with any uh, any confidence. So, and that probably takes you to the end of January. Um, but what I would say is, given our our outlook, um, is the spike is hopefully it flushes out a lot of those shorts, and then the spike will be a fantastic. Uh, opportunity to buy offshore stuff. Yeah, and, and, so, and I mean net effect is anyway. Look for for anyone who's a longer term, you know, investor is we're expecting it to be lower than where well lower than where it is today. You know, in, in two or three well, years. More within a year. Yes. Yeah. But this Absolutely. question is: Does it rise first? And and there's a yeah. Because I, I do think one thing markets have got completely wrong is the RBA. Uh, markets are already pricing in rate rate hikes here in next year i think maybe the end of next year mm. uh, and i just think there's buckley's chance of that in australia i mean maybe on the outside chance that we get zero immigration we might be starting to talk about it in 2023 mm. but australia just got so many tools to that it pulls or levers to pull that it does all the time deliberately do so to embed in, embed deflation and keep house prices high, um, including macro prudential now as well. But um, I just think the market's got that, the wrong end of the RBA stick completely. Uh, and it, you know, there's all this talk now. There's a federal election coming. There's talk of an RBA review, and that review is going to be all about how it failed to generate inflation. Is it really going to pile in at this point with rate hikes? I mean, I think yeah. that. I think the market's very wrong on that. Um, uh, sorry, where was it? What was, what was the question? It was uh, how how far can the Aussie dollar rise before it falls? So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well. So in, in short, yes. I just think a year out. Yes, with yeah. that kind of outlook for the RBA and potential yeah. commodity falls and, 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 and Chinese property and. You know, and that yeah. that that extends. You know, that extends to most of that investment view. Really, is that. You know, it's, it's that similar thought is look that we we think the direction is is down for a lot of these, but um, you know, it's, it's not impossible that you could get a a spike higher, and if you get the yep. wrong sequence of events, the spike higher could be really could be really big. Yes, uh, and, and, and actually keeping in mind though as well, um, most of the effect you're seeing in these commodity prices isn't being isn't flowing through to stocks um, anywhere near what the uh, the increase in in uh, price is. So no, uh, at all, yeah. uh, that's no. really. That's really something. So that's telling you that, uh, I mean, I guess the stocks are, are following the futures market, really. Yeah. And they're, they're just saying that this is temporary. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Well, I think maybe on that note, we might might leave it there, Dave. Um, yep, good-o. 
thanks everyone for listening in. Um, you know, don't forget to, get to click that like button. Uh, and if you know anyone else who might get something out of today's episode, um, we'd love you to share it with them. Uh, if you want to see any more of any of our previous webinars, head over to nucleuswealth.com slash content uh, to stay up to date with news from us. You can follow us on social media. We're on um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, most of the... Uh, most of those we all have something on and thanks again for tuning in um from myself david and the rest of the team we'd look forward to uh seeing you at the next one